A Banker's Journey is a biography of Edmund Safra, um, who was one of the great bankers of the second half of the 20th centuries, as well as an iconic figure in the Syrian and uh, Lebanese Jewish diaspora. I say for that community, he was a mixture of Warren Buffett, a Rothschild, and an Oscar Schindler rolled into one person. And uh, the story of this book is you know, the story of his banking career, his personal trajectory, and how entwined it was um, with the sort of fate of the diaspora of uh, the Jews who had come from Aleppo and Beirut. So what initially tr attracted you to his story? Well, you know, my wife told me that I was born in some way to write this book after I showed her the first paragraph. I've spent 30 years as, a, as an adult I, I, um, covering global finance. I used to work at the New York Times and Newsweek. I went to the World Economic Forum every year. I've studied business history and written eight other books on the topic. So that, that equips me to kind of tell who, uh, what Edmund Safford did in his life as a banker. Um, but as far as who he is, um, on my mother's side, I'm a, uh, a Syrian Jew as well. My great-grandparents came from Aleppo and Damascus. We have names like Nasser and Dweck. When I was growing up, we cursed in Arabic, not in Yiddish. Um, and so if you were to kind of construct a Venn diagram of people who enjoy uh, creating 20th century global financial narratives and people whose grandparents and great-grandparents came from Aleppo, it's a very slim overlap. And... Um, I'm sort of the one person in there, and you know that's that's the junction of what this story is about. It's a story of the development of global finance, and it's the story of the Aleppo Jewish community. So when a, a colleague called me um, uh, more than five years ago now and said, you know, uh, the Safra Foundation, they have this archive of all these materials um, from Edmund Safra's life. They have all these interviews that were done with hundreds of people who knew him in the years since his death, since 1999. Do you think you might be able to make something of it? And I, you know, I thought I could, yeah. Now, he started off uh, with very modest roots, as you mentioned, in Syria. He ended up as one of the most successful international bankers in the world. What was the secret of his success? Well, his roots were not, um, I mean, you might say they were humble because they came from Aleppo and Beirut, but he was born into wealth. The Safras were a banking family. In the 1870s, they were like a many Rothschilds of the Middle East. There were four brothers, and one went to Istanbul, one went to Alexandria, one stayed in Aleppo, and one went to Beirut. Um, after World War One, when the Ottoman Empire falls apart, it, they kind of disperse. So Edmund's father, Jacob Safra, moved the family to Beirut in 1920. He had a small bank, so it wasn't a large bank, but he was recognized as one of the sort of leaders and wealthy people in the community. So Edmund always says that you know he never worried about money because he was he was born into it. However, the scale, um, you know, the family was worth a couple million dollars in the 40s when he started out. And he took and it he to had, a new level, right? He ended up, um, you know, his banks when he sold them in 1999 were worth 10 billion. And you know, a lot of people who inherit or come into family businesses are uh, content to sort of manage and run them as they were. Edmund Safra was somebody who. You know, he went to Brazil at the age of 22, and he started a, a series of trading operations. Five years later, he goes to Geneva, starts a Swiss bank. Five years later, he goes to New York and starts Republic Bank as a startup in New York, which ultimately grows into the 11th largest bank in the United States. Um, in 1982, he sells his first Swiss bank to American Express. Six years later, he opens up a new one 
in Switzerland that then grows into a very large enterprise. So he had that combination of someone who was, um, you know, sort of born to that world, uh, courtly, concerned about the long term, but also someone who had this enormous entrepreneurial energy for starting new enterprises. He died in 1999 in rather bizarre circumstances. Tell us about his death. Yeah, I would say, you know, what a lot of people know about Edmund Safra's life is uh, how he was, he was attacked at one point. There was an episode in the 80s where um, American Express had launched a smear campaign against him, and there's an entire 500-page book about that. And people know how he died, because he died in a, a fire in Monaco in 1999, and that was written about in Vanity Fair. Uh, the upshot is, you know, in his 60s, Edmund uh, had Parkinson's disease and was kind of growing more debilitated. So he had a uh, a large staff of sort of round-the-clock nurses. One of them was a male American nurse who had been a former soldier, was very uh, insecure about his place in the sort of household. He wasn't he felt like he might lose his job or something, and he decided that he would stage an attack on the house in Monaco, fend it off, and then kind of you know be the hero and and uh, thus secure his space. So, um, in the early morning hours, this guy sort of stabbed himself in the stomach, took sandpaper to his face, yelled that there was an intruder, and set a small fire in a waste paper basket in a room to set off the smoke alarms and you know alert the first responders to come. Um, Edmund, uh, hearing this, uh, goes into a kind of dressing room with one of his nurses and essentially locks himself in because he thinks there's an intruder in the building. Um, despite appeals, people were calling and say, you should come out, it's okay, the police arrived. He was reluctant to come out and he ended up dying of smoke inhalation because that fire that had been set spread throughout the building. Hmm. So when you look back on his um, success in creating this banking empire around the globe, do you think being Jewish helped him or was it a hindrance? I, I think it was a help. You know, we, we live in a world of networks, right? Um, it's LinkedIn, it's financial networks, it's technology networks. <clears throat> if you dial back 100 years, the networks were more personal in nature. So he was born into a few very important networks. One, <clears throat> the network of people from Aleppo, or Halabis as they were called. It's a very unique community. Um, part of the people in the 1880s and 1890s, they weren't just going to the U.S. There were there were 10 Halabis in Tokyo, in Manila, in Hong Kong, in Milan, in Manchester, England. And these were people, you know, when you had to do business based on trust um, and who somebody's name was, there was this immense network already of merchants, traders, bankers that he could plug into. Uh, a second world that he plugged into, a uh, network he had, was the world of the Alliance. This was this network of French-speaking Jewish schools that were set up from Morocco all the way to Iran and Bulgaria and Greece. They were financed out of France. There was a central training center in Paris. They would bring teachers in, send them out to the Allianz schools throughout the Middle East. It was kind of a very large, almost fraternity if you if you went there. So he was part of that network. Uh, the Safras were part of what was then an international Jewish banking network. Um, they you know, were not likely to do business with J.P. Morgan Chase or people like that, but they were doing business with the Rothschilds and the Makatas in London. I have documents showing them trading gold with them in the 30s 
And uh, I interviewed Jacob Rothschild, Lord Jacob Rothschild, a couple weeks ago, who knew Edmund Safra quite well. In 1972, uh, when one of Edmund's banks went public, Rothschild did the, you know, did the public authoring, and, and Jacob Rothschild stood there at a press conference and said, you know, we've known you, uh, my father knew your father, and uh, my grandfather knew your grandfather. So that was an important network for them as well. And tell us a bit about it, finally, about his personal life. He didn't have children, did he? One of the ways in which, you know, he was very kind of faithful to his Aleppo roots and the kind of culture and customs of the Syrian and Lebanese Jewish community. The one place I think he departed from that was, you know, most men, when they're in their 20s or 30, marry a woman who's several years younger and then have many kids. Because in that world, you know, any business is by definition a family business, and only the sons can go into it. Um, Edmund in his 20s and 30s was literally... I want to say almost nomadic. He had his father's bank in Brazil, which he continued to own even until the day of his death. He had a bank in Geneva. He had his operations in Brazil. He had a bank in New York. And he was moving from one place to the other and summering in the south of France. Um, at some level, he felt this was not an a appropriate lifestyle for uh, someone to have you know, a, a wife and small children. Uh, what kind of life would that be? So for a variety of reasons, he didn't get married in his 20s and 30s. In his 40s, he marries Lily Safra. Uh, um, she's a, a woman who was from Brazil. Uh, she had already been, so they were both in their 40s. She had already been married and had, had a couple of children of their own. So, you know, that became his family, and their children's children became his grandchildren. But he didn't have his own biological children. 